of the Lakers locker room. I'm your co-host, Tejon Graham. Alongside me is my guy, the one, the only, Mr. Jason Little. Jason, how are you doing today, man? Fantastic. Thank you, Tejon. So today we have a great special guest. I was fortunate enough to meet her probably back in February. She's been a great mentor. Has done a lot for the sports community. Please welcome to Lakers locker room, Coach Leanna Osei. Coach Lee, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Tejan and Jason. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be on the podcast. It's been it's been great because I've been getting to know you probably since like February. So it's been about six, seven months. I've never met you in person, which is kind of crazy, but we've been working <laughs> together. Like I'm actually part of your not-for-profit, which is crazy, but like I'm really excited to have you on. A lot of great things we can talk about here, and I'm just really excited to have you share your story. Thank you. So, so let's get right into it. So 2020 was obviously a huge mess of a year. We're over halfway through 2021. What's been the biggest thing you've learned about yourself over this whole time, you know, with the pandemic and all the stuff that happened with society with George Floyd last year? The biggest thing I learned for myself is that there's strength in leaning on other people. Like I've spent most of uh, my life kind of bouncing around. I lived a bunch of different places growing up. I went to school in the States. Um, right now I live in rural Nova Scotia. Um, I'm a, you know, single black female. And I've just been really good at being independent. Like my faith has kind of carried me through, but other than that, it's just kind of been me leaning on me. And this year really showed me that it's okay to be vulnerable and that there's a lot of power and a lot of strength that comes in leaning from leaning on other people. So I didn't mention it in the intro, but you are the head coach of St. Francis Xavier's women's basketball team. So obviously last year, 2020-21 was a lost season. It was a wash through the pandemic. But we did get news that there will be a 21-22 season for all four conferences. So how excited are you as a coach to be back with your team and getting ready for this upcoming season? I'm really excited. When I came to St. FX in 2018-19, uh, I was you know, the youngest head coach in the country. And it wasn't until that following year that I recruited my first class. So the last time we played, I kind of had five first years out there just trying to figure it out. And then we had COVID hit. So I'm really excited uh, because last year, as much as we didn't have game, we were, able to, we were able to do a lot of skill development type of stuff and scrimmage and game simulations. And I think we're all just ready to get back to that semblance of normalcy. So I'm, I'm really pumped up. We're coming for a playoff spot in the AUS. You heard it here first. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now I'm, I'm excited. For you, especially since, like I said, last year was just a wash. Like a lot of people were kind of hoping there was a season, and we were just talking about before we got on air. But you guys, maybe some schools in the AWS were playing some games because in the Maritimes the COVID levels were so pretty low. So it must have been really hard for you. But now that, like I said, there is going to be season. As the coach, what do you think is really going to take for you guys to take that next step and hopefully get to the AUS finals and eventually qualify for nationals? What do you think is going to take for your team to do that? Well, just an unbelievable amount of commitment to kind of three things. And for us going into this season, looking at our trends in our conference and looking at where some of our efficiencies are and some of our deficiencies, it's going to be defense, rebounding, and then just making good decisions on offense, keeping it very simple. Um, again, I'm, I'm so grateful for last year. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a professional skills basketball trainer as well. So just being able to look at our periodization and pretty much just do skill work the whole year was really big because we were able to kind of elate our players' skill level because that same effects, like, it's not like we're recruiting Division One prospects, right? So any opportunity that we can get in the gym to get better, that's what we're going to do. And our kids really bought into that. And so now it's about those things that we can control, right? What's our plan on defense? How are we going to execute it? How can we limit second chance opportunities? And then, you know, just having our, our, our girls know, like, go out there and, you know, make simple decisions and, and good things will happen for us. 
calling from now the 2022 AUS champions? Calling from now? We're co- we we got to get to playoffs first, but, <laughs> but then yeah, then we're then we're coming for it. Okay, <laughs> I like that. I like that. I'm excited for you guys. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to watch as many games as possible, and I'm gonna text you and say, "Hey, great game!" Or "Hey, you can do this better." I'm I'm gonna root for you guys from afar. So, seriously, good luck with the season this year, Coach. I'm excited to see you guys play. Thank you. And I have I have a confession. I watch a lot of OUA basketball too. Yeah. Usually, I- usually I secretly am voting for my my alumnus, my alumni, Laurier. Mm-hmm. So a lot of their games I'll just watch and stream on on Synergy or wherever. <laughs> oh, so that means you you were probably happy when they beat us two years ago. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. <laughs> okay, yo, bro, Jason, we got signed back. <laughs> it's all love. It's all love. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. But switching gears a bit, you know, I got to know you really personally because you grew up in the Rexton area. You went to the you know, probably the most prominent basketball program probably in the 2000s, you know, Eastern Commerce. So how was it growing up in Rexta? How, how did you get into playing basketball? Sure. So even how I got to Eastern was kind of like just, it was just a blessing. So I grew up in the Jane and Finch area, but now, um, like I own a, I own a home in Etobicoke in that Rexta area. Mm-hmm. So when I was in Connections, actually my eighth grade year, we moved up to Vaughn and we were right at like Western and Major Mac, which is where right down the street from Canada's Wonderland. But back then, that would have been 2005. There were no sidewalks. There was like barely gas stations. Like there, it was just the boondocks. And so I actually was commuting about three and a half hours each day from Vaughn. There was a single bus that actually ran from Western Road, turned into Wilson and took me to the to the uh, TTC station. Mm-hmm. And so it took me about three and a half hours to get to Eastern. Um, and going there was incredible because it was the first time outside of like a club environment that I just saw people who were hungry for the game. And I went in like I was a pretty good player, like in grade school in my ninth grade year, but I didn't really know what it was. You know, I walked into that gym. Girls are like slapping backboard, talking smack, like six, three, six, four. Like I just was like, whoa, this is a this is a different level. Right. Um so I want to shout out my high school coach, Kareem Griffin, because he's the one that recruited me to go to Eastern Commerce. And eventually I was able to kind of build it closer uh, to the city. And, and eventually um, he actually gave up his home to me. I, I was living with his mother and he bummed a couch downtown Toronto just to just to kind of help me out fi- and find a place to live while I was playing basketball and getting my education there. So playing at Eastern was great. We were like the first city team. We were the only team to really go to those out of town tournaments and be yeah. like the black team like those ones you're going to Hamilton and Burlington and we didn't really know where that was we we're just like we see houses like where are we because we're so <laughs> in the city. so we, we always you know we always thought it was so fancy and stuff but we went back to back off the champs first girl city uh team to do that and then um yeah a lot of my teammates went on to do amazing things you know uh, Vanessa Cabango was on the national team and she played with Alina Del Don at Delaware I went D1. I had a lot of teammates who were D1 caliber. Some didn't qualify. I went to JUCO route. You know, some are, some are, you know, became moms. Some are full on in their professional careers, but it's such an important time that I hold with me. Now the guy side was crazy. Oh. Like, like it was crazy as you know, right? Like the yeah. junior Kadugans and like the Manny Duresas and the, like the list goes on of people that went to Eastern and kind of did amazing things. I can tell you this, our home games were just lit. Like the yep. standing room only and yep. it's standing room with no space. Like you couldn't even shoot, shoot corner threes basically in our gyms yeah. and it was always hot because no AC, but it was a competitive advantage for us because we knew how to 
manipulate that to our advantage. Yeah, yeah. So Roy Rana actually was the athletic director at the time and the, and the senior men's coach. And he just finished at the Olympics, right? He was with uh, Germany staff. So just pretty cool connection there. Uh, but I'm so connected to the Eastern family still as much as the school's closed. You know, like it's just, it's all love for that Eastern family. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's the thing too. It sucks that first of all, if you go in the gym, Jason, the gym is small. Like it's a small gym. And Jamal is it one of those ones where the three point line gets cut off at the it's, wall? It's, yeah. It's small. Yeah. It's, it's a real, like real Toronto, like high school, like gym, like back in the day when you like uh, Eastern yeah. Commerce, then George Herbert, I think it is like, Oak. uh, what's it? It's Oakwood. Like all those schools. Oakwood. Like, Real, right. real Toronto. One and a half dribbles past half. Yeah. One dribble past half, and you're at the three point line. Yeah. I don't know how we got away with playing league games there, but it just was like, <laughs> and it was so lit that you like because there was no space at the ground level. We had balconies. Yeah, and so yeah, yes. Were like hanging on the balconies. So even when you came for those road games, we hosted tournaments there. Like nothing could stop us. But it was just so funny because it'd be so packed up on the balcony, and people are just going crazy, hitting the backboard and all that kind of stuff. But the no. thing is, when we played at the U of T's, when we played at the Seneca's, like when we played in those city championships, we didn't, it wasn't different for us, even though it was like legitimately a 90 foot court. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so it's just funny. No, it's funny. No, Jason, I'm so stuck on this, Jason. She said she got for three and a half hours. I thought I had it bad when I was in prep because I could get to TBA for an hour and a half. Three and a half hours, Jason. And you talked about prep, but could you do three and a half hours again to school? That's that's crazy no god no like if, if i was going to be doing prep it was in ottawa and like traffic there i can get there in like 50 minutes <laughs> and yeah. i thought it was bad when i was playing club ball and driving 40 minutes to brockville <laughs> yeah three hours yeah that's <laughs> yeah. It, was, it was to the point where they just had me like earmarked on the attendance because they knew like okay this is how far she's coming from kind of thing and then when i moved back to the city it was a little bit easier but yeah definitely it definitely was a grind no, that's crazy. Yeah. Like I said, I had to, I thought waking up six o'clock in the morning every day to get to school for like eight, three or something, but three, what time did you have to wake up? Like four or five in the morning? Yeah. I had to catch the first bus, which left at like, it was like five Oh five or five fifteen. Yeah. Um, and then that bus actually goes all the way from Vaughn. It's still there. It's still there now. And it takes you cross steels, takes you to Wilson and it keeps going and it brings you right into the TTC station. And I take that up to, um, where do I transfer at? It's like that young, young and that young line, I got to transfer onto the green line. And then I take that to, to Donlin. So it was a little bit of a journey. Yeah. Damn, man. That, that, that's crazy, man. We were just talking about this, like in a, uh, our last episode with uh, prep school. Um, did you find that that gives an advantage going into university? Cause I know myself coming from just plain old public school, it was like a slap in the face when I got to university, like, Whoa, this is, 10 times quicker and way more physical. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know what? It's the games changed so much because back then, like there were, there were no prep schools. Right. But the reality mm -hmm. is if you have a chance to simulate what that's going to look like for you in first year university, it is going to better set you up. I'm still of the mindset that no matter what you do, you're just never going to be ready for first year. Like I've got, I still have nightmares from first year university conditioning at the, at the University of Miami and the ACC, right? And I'm playing with like McDonald's All-Americans and stuff. Like there is as high level as Eastern was and and simulated some of that. Like it still, it was not going to get me ready. But um, I think in today's day and age, yeah, it, you know, I think it depends on the level that you're trying to play at and where you're aspiring to be. 
And I'm all about like over preparation, right? Like failing to, failing to prepare means you're preparing to fail. And so I think your best bet is putting yourself in that situation so that there's a, there's at least some familiarity with either living alone or with other people, you know, time management is a big one. Um, commuting, understanding how to like find your voice when, you know, you don't have mom or dad there. Uh, all that stuff kind of translates to, to, to this level. And I think it's, like your first year is always going to be crazy in university, but it, but it just makes the transition a little bit easier for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You talked to it just now, but eventually once you finish from Eastern Carmel, you, you, you have the opportunity to go to university of Miami. So what was that time? Like, you know, playing division one, being in the States and being the nice, beautiful weather of Florida. Cause I got to go to Florida in my fifth year to Orlando. It wasn't Miami, but for anyone who hasn't been playing in Florida is beautiful. Like waking up every day, 25 degree weather compared to coming to Canada and Toronto where it's cold <laughs> as hell, there's snow up to your, like your knees. Like what was that experience like playing at University of Miami as soon as you finished from Eastern Commerce? Honestly, it was like a dream come true. Like I felt like it was something I was working towards for so long and I didn't really know what it was. I just knew, you know what? My family doesn't come from many means. And so if I have an opportunity to further my education, that kind of was how I was thinking about it. But when I got there, I was like, whoa, a meal card, like free food. Cause at home it's like, everything's rationed and you can only eat so much. And then, you know, even, even when we had our house, it was like, use this amount of water. And so for, for me, it was like a dream come true. Like people get like a freshman 15. I'm pretty sure I had like a freshman 25. I was eating that much like um but but honestly at the at the bcs level like at that high level especially like how good our football team was and we're in the acc and stuff you pretty much just feel like you're a rock star like we had our own chartered plane uh like i literally went with the clothes on my back and by the end of that summer i had like 10 pairs of shoes like a bunch of clothes again like not worrying about eating not worrying about sleeping so they, they know how to take care of you academic wise. I had my own academic um, uh, support person. Our administration was pretty thorough. We had four assistant coaches. Now it was also crazy from a basketball standpoint. Like I could tell you that I did feel like an athlete student. Like that's kind of how it is at that level when you're playing with players that are, you know, national team uh, looking to go to the W. Like it's just, it's a different level. Our coach was an all American and, and broke a bunch of records. And so like the commitment level is really high. It's a 6 a.m. to pretty much 10 p.m. day. Um, and even 6 a.m., like my alarm went off just before five just to get ready for those workouts, right? So it it was a huge commitment, but at the same time, like it was incredible. If it wasn't for the fact that I just wasn't quite in a great relationship with our head coach, I would have stayed all four years. So I actually only stayed for about a year and a half at Miami and I ended up transferring uh, to a junior college in Texas so that I didn't have to sit out. And I, I reconnected with my high school teammates from Eastern who were there because they didn't qualify and they had a bunch of D1 looks. Um, and then we did our thing there too, because that was like a top school, but um, Miami was blessed. And the reason why I chose Miami really was because I I was like, no snow, I'm going. No cap, I don't blame <laughs> so I had, you. I, yeah, I had a few options and I was like, are you crazy? Like, you ain't gotta ask me twice. Like, <laughs> there, there, I'm yeah. there. Yeah. I want to, I, oh, go ahead, Jason. What's that? No, go ahead, Jesse. Go ahead. Oh, I mean, actually, now that the time's up, I, what school did you go to in Texas? Uh, one of my buddies, uh, yet to get him on here, uh, Russell Baker, he went to, I think, two different uh, JUCOs in Texas. I just can't remember the name off the top of my head. 
Mine is called Trinity Valley. If you watch like like Last Chance U, like those schools in Last Chance U, they would be like in and around our conference. Like we were a D1 JUCO, but even some of those like cheerleading kind of shows that you see on Netflix and stuff, like that that kind of was us. I think we were region 14. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. It, it, it really is last chance you at JUCO though. Like honestly, I have so many memories, like good and funny, I would say it. Not good and bad, but good and funny. But it, <laughs> it's, it's straight dog eat dog. Like yeah. That's all I've heard is it's like yeah. you, you're fighting for your spot every time like every single day. And that's you know, you you you're by yourself. It's like yeah. you versus everyone and even else. Then, and even then, unless the school has a rapport of graduating kids two good schools, right? Whether it's four-year division one schools or D2 schools, it's like that's half, half the battle is just being in that dog-to-dog fight, but then you don't really know, you know, like we were fortunate at TVCC that our men's team and our women's team was really good. Like part of the reason I went is because one of the girls I looked up to also pitched me when when they were, when I opened up my recruitment. And so she had played there, then went to Tennessee, played with Candace Parker, then went to the league. And so for me, I knew I was going in a situation that as much as it was a lower level of play than an than a NCAA high major, I, it was going to be easy for me to get re-recruited. And I did. And so did my teammates. But we were probably one of one or two teams out of maybe like 10 or 11 that actually were graduating kids to a scholarship situation. So that's another thing that people got to think about, right? Yeah, for sure. I want to ask you this just because obviously playing you know, back in the high school in terms of now, when you look at Canada basketball as in general, Canada basketball is really taking a life of its own where we're, we can, you can really argue that we're really catching up to the U.S. with obviously the D1 players and now we have NBA players in the league, like Jamal Murray, Corey Lewis, all that type of stuff. When we're talking about women's basketball in Canada, women's basketball is really taking a life of its own. Like we really see a lot of D1 players in women's basketball with Kia Nurse and obviously like you said, your little sister, Leah Edwards, doing a lot of great things. So coming from your era until now, just talk a bit about how amazing it's been to see the growth of women's basketball here in Canada take really a life of its own. Yeah, I think what really changed for CB is opening the door to people of color and just like, again, it was what we now call allyship. And like, what I really like about the women's side is first, they kind of really took a stance on like same sex and inclusivity. And so you kind of saw that. And so I think they were one of the first national sport organizations to really kind of open up the door to just saying, Hey, like sport is sport. And like, let's, let's connect and let's, you know, empower people. And, you know, going into this Olympics, you know, our, our senior team didn't play as well as, as we would have liked, obviously, and COVID and all that kind of stuff, injuries and all that. But we saw the makeup of the team change. And, you know, I, I remember even when I first came to St. FX um, shortly after, or that year, I remember I saw the first black female um, head coach for Canada basketball. And her name was Cheryl Jean-Paul. Who, yeah. And she's a mentor of mine now. And she's at Trinity Western. But you've really seen that makeup of the teams change. Um, and I think it's lent itself well to our st- to developing our style of play. And I think our challenge has been like, we've been so focused on emulating European basketball and not trying to do what the U S does. And as a historian, there's like a real history behind there, right? Like us trying to separate from the U S and not be like them, but we kind of have to understand that based on where we're located and the, and the kind of athletes that we have, we should be taking, we should be playing like, and taking the best of both worlds, right? Like that grit factor that you see on the AU scale with American basketball, um, the the commitment to skills development, and then take that European, you know, the poise, the savviness, the 
the um, conceptual based and decision making training and kind of put that together. And I think that's the product that we've been seeing. It's like a mixture of both because we've got athletes, but we've also got really skilled players. Um, the girl side has grown as well because when I was coming up, it was just Team Ontario. If you didn't play for Team Ontario, you didn't get one of those 15 spots. Like that was it. Like yeah. everybody played on, everybody was trying to vie for that spot. I remember I only went to one trial and I had, uh, I had uh, Kayla Alexander actually on my team at the trial. It was like a week-long camp. They used to call mm -hmm. it um, MDP. And it was just, if you didn't get one of those 15 spots, like, then what did you do, right? And I was fortunate in being really involved on the boys' side that through grassroots, I was able to get a lot of opportunities. I actually played three years AU for a Buffalo-based team um, that had some big-time players on the girls' and the guys' side. But, but I was kind of like the exception, right? For everyone else, it was like, I got to play for Team Ontario kind of thing. Um, and now you've got like the Jewel League of Ontario, which is where Shea Colley and Kia Nurse would have played. We have the OSBA. We have independent prep schools like Royal Crown. So, um, you know, our U19 Team Canada team just played their second game. And right now the big talk is Cheyenne Day-Wilson, who's kind of like one of my young girls that I grew up with in that Jane and Jane and Finch in Falstaff area. And she dropped, you know, 29 yesterday. She dropped she had 20 at half today and she's just killing first time on the international stage. Right. And this is a kid from the, this is a kid from the streets, from the city. And it's like her first chance that she's being given that shot. So I think that's a, like shy is a really good example to show like how much a game has grown. You can be this good and not go through the system, or you could be a system kid and also be just as good. Right. And right. ultimately I think that's what we need to embrace that. It doesn't need to be cookie cutter. Let people, come up and then just make sure that everyone gets the same opportunity. And, you know, I think for coaching, it's the same thing. Like we just want the same opportunities. And I totally agree because I think when you look at basketball from on the men's side, there are so many different um, paths, like you said, where you said, if you said it just now, like if you didn't make those 15 people roster, that was it. Whereas for men's side, there are so many different opportunities for men. And Jason Lutz is that now with the MPN, there's like this rankings. Like we just talked about another podcast, like, you have all these kids now. You go on Instagram, you're seeing people like fourth graders saying, you know, class of 2029, like killing these, like, can, can this bring this, like, can this, bring, can this yeah. bring this kid? Like, but the point right. I'm trying to make is that there's so many paths now, not just for men, but there's a lot of people that made a conservative effort to realize that, hey, women can hoop too. And like, women, don't, don't forget about these ladies over here. Ladies can hoop too. And I've said it many times that yeah. a lot of these girls that used to be neglected from by the basketball system, but there's a lot of politics again in basketball. Let's just keep it honest. Like, there's a lot of politics. You go to prep school, there's a lot of politics. So the point I'm trying to say in general is that a lot of these people that I used to once upon a time kind of neglect the woman that could really do make noise they're now creating opportunities to give them exposure. And that's why you see a lot of people like said with Cheyenne and Aaliyah Edwards, and obviously Letitia Latimer, all these people going to Syracuse, like all these people are benefiting from those people making the conservative effort to highlight women's basketball. So I'm really excited that a lot of people are starting to do that. I'm also really excited to see how the women's basketball scene continues to develop. And since now that the Olympics is finished, and obviously, unfortunately, like I said, the women's basketball team didn't do as great as we wanted to, what are your hopes for 2024 in Paris, like you really think that women's basketball team can finally take that step to hopefully win a gold medal and compete against the U.S.? Yeah, with the prospects we have coming up, you know, the 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 veterans that we have that are going to be healthy, you know, four years from now, like our next wave of, of, of athletes coming up are, are just as skilled. And so I think our future is incredibly bright. Um, I think we need to kind of keep the pedal on development. Um, as someone who's who's done a fair bit of recruitment consulting and talking to a lot of American coaches and national team coaches, you know, here it's like 
just based on where you are, you get exposed to different kinds of development. And what I would like to see is from that, from that high school age, can we actually ensure that our kids are getting better so that when, when, when we see them, you know, at 2024, we're like, okay, three years from now, if they're here, then they should be that much better. And I think that's just like the part that we're not seeing as consistently before we weren't seeing that at all. We were seeing really good prospects young, but then they just stay the same player. And so like, for me, I'm super passionate about being in the gym. Anybody who knows me, it's a, it's a twice a day, every day for me kind of thing. You know, I, I, I work out with some of our men's teams players that are around for the summer and some pros and national team athletes. So I think as long as the development stays on track, like we've got the athletes, we've got the kids who are willing to work. We've got phenomenal coaches across the country. Um, and yeah, I just think through our community effort, we're going to continue to do some things. We have, we have players that are good enough to be in the W and will be, you know, you look at someone like Leticia, uh, Leticia, I mean, who was on that Olympic team as one of the young girls, she's going back to South Carolina. They're easily favorites to win, win it all. You know what I mean? And so the future, the future is bright. Um, and I'm, I'm really excited. I'm here for it. So I hope I get an opportunity to, to play a part as well. Yeah, me too. I'm excited too. Like what you've been hearing so far? Make sure to follow us on IG at Lakers Locker Room and subscribe to our YouTube channel while you're at it, where you can find clips of all our episodes and video content associated with the podcast. Part two of the Lakers Locker Room starts now. Um, I really want to switch gears here. So, Coach, on this podcast, we really try to focus on the both the main purpose of the Lakers Locker Room is to have thought-provoking conversation on sports and issues that are facing today's society. So. We, every time we bring someone on, we really like to have them share their story and about personal triumphs and stuff that they went through. You know, getting to know you, obviously, there was a reason why you, because you said you used to play University of Miami, and then you eventually end up going back to Wolf Laurie, and there was reasons why you went back to Wolf Laurie, obviously, due to some personal hardships. So Jason doesn't know the story, and obviously, a lot of the people that listen to this podcast right now don't know the story. So if you don't mind just talking a bit about your story of what led you to go from University of Miami to Juco back to Wolf Laurie and the personal struggles that you dealt with following that? Sure, absolutely. So I guess I'll just start by saying, like, my mom immigrated to Canada in her late teens. She had a fourth grade education and she didn't speak a lick of English. And she came, like, literally just to give uh, her kids an opportunity to, to succeed in life. And so with that, you know, being from a West African household, even when I picked up a basketball when I was younger, just as something to do in the Jane Finch um, Connections community, it wasn't accepted within the household and it really caused uh, like a like a rift that continued to grow and grow and grow. So I was really stubborn. I loved the game. You know, I was always the girl walking around with the guys and it did keep me out of trouble. But again, it just wasn't something that girls were supposed to do. And so in high school, I actually bounced around um, for a bit um, and, and partially because of that, because of that reason. So I lived in about six different places. I was uh, I was on welfare at one point and I just wanted to play ball. And for me, it was like keeping my faith, playing ball, and then and then trying to figure figure it out. And so I was uh, I was kind of separated from my family, if you will, even kind of when I left for school. And um, at the end of uh, my second year of university, I had committed to um, Robert Morris, which is a it's a D one school in Pittsburgh, like kind of like a low D one. Yeah, yeah. And um, I got a call from my mom, and she was really worried about my brother. Um, from a health standpoint and my brother never played any sports he pretty much was if you ever seen the show like um, like Malcolm in the middle like that was him like he just was like a genius too smart for his own good kind of thing yeah. kind of snobby you know like and um, he actually went to Laurier 
he graduated in the top 5% um, in business. Um, he went on to become a CPA. He was working for ENY and he seemed to have it all together. And then his mental health, mental, uh, health started to deteriorate. And again, in our, in our culture, in our background, we don't really talk about mental health. We don't, we don't really talk about anything emotional, you know, or social. It's just not a norm. Like things like, you know, sitting down and having a family dinner, that's foreign to us. Things like saying, I love you. You just don't do that. Like, it's just, it's really strange yeah. um, how, how sometimes our, our cultures are. Um, but it was really tough for our family to grapple with and my mother, especially because she's thinking, well, the more I pray, then, you know, we can kind of fix this problem. And at the same time, I would say, because my brother had been exposed to a lot and had been the first graduate um, and, and, you know, really kind of always knew his stuff, you know, he, you know, he, he wasn't really wanting to kind of listen, you know, and, and, and seek wisdom and, and things like that. And so long story short, he, he really struggled um, and he ended up taking his own life. And it was a mixture of, of, a, of a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, he was the only, he was maybe one of two black men that worked in his department. He was severely overworked. He was working close to like 19, 20 hour work days like that. He did share with me as well. Um, and when we found out about it, it was too late. And in fact, it was a little bit of like a nightmare, uh, quite literally, because um, the way I found out was being home with my little sister and um, firefighters coming in our home. And, you know, I'm, you know, barging in my room and I'm like thinking, am I dreaming? And, you know, they were all masked up because they thought there was a gas leakage and they had actually found uh, my brother in a kind of one-off street um, outside of the Vaughn area uh, in his vehicle. And so he, he mixed chemicals and, 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 and took his own life. And so it was, it was, a it was really tough because I had to be the one to break the news to my mother at the time she was uh, in a relationship with who now is my stepdad. And, um, you know, how mothers have that feeling that something's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And like, that's my mom. Like she always knows. And, and I remember just convincing her, like, do what you got to do. Like I'll help with, with our brother and all that kind of stuff. And not even a week before she, not even a week after she left, kind of that happened. And so I had my little sister who had like a kind of breakdown and then I had to break the news to my mom and it, and it just broke her heart. And when people ask me kind of to this day, like what's, what's kind of like the thing that you fear. And to me, it's like, I would never like wish on my worst enemy, like for someone to like bury their child. Like that's probably the most heartbreaking thing ever. Right. So that's kind of it for me. Um, my brother's passing really changed things in my family. I would say it brought us together for the first time. Uh, it, it, when he passed away, we had to file for bankruptcy on the home uh, because my mother had taken out so many loans and stuff to help him get through school. And once he passed, it was kind of like we had to figure some stuff out. So um, I decided to go to Laurier um, and I wasn't even sure I was going to go back to school. <laughs> That's a whole nother thing. But my mom, we decided to do it kind of in honor of my brother um, and our department and my team and my teammates were so supportive. Um, my little sister had to live with her father and my mother had to rent a place as well. So we lost our home and um, my mom and, and some relatives were able to put some money together kind of two, three years later and, and get a bungalow, which is kind of where we're at now uh, back in the GTA. Um, there was a lot of good things. There's a lot of good things that my brother kind of helped me do as well. When I came back from school that one year, because there was so much going on at home, I actually didn't go back to school right away. One, 
I had no idea how the Canadian school system worked. I, I thought it cost like a hundred thousand dollars a year to go to school. Cause in my mind, I was like, do you want or die? Right. So yeah. I had no idea what that even looked like. And I remember um, I was working crazy graveyard shifts, like some sketch jobs, like for cash. And I, and so I'd be leaving at like 9 PM coming back at 9 AM. And the agreement I made with my mom was, Hey, if I'm doing this five days a week, then I want to get in the basketball community. And so I started doing some um, target athlete, like ta- like TIDP basketball programs with Team Material. I started writing for North Pro Hoops, like right in the beginning. They used to be called Crown, actually. And then they became NPH. Um, I was, um, my brother actually gave me my first, you know, 70 bucks to register Canleats as an organization. So Canleats is a, um, it's an organization that's, that's devoted to empowering females through sport and specifically basketball. So for the last 11 years or so, we've been doing kind of a lot of stuff in the basketball community. So like, there was a lot of really good things that happened that year, but then with my brother passing, it just kind of flipped everything on its head. Um, my brother introduced me to one of his mentors, which was his business professor. And she helped me actually go through the process of like OSAP. I was registering, I was registering for school in like May, like it, it, like it just wasn't even supposed to happen. And then it happened and I was fortunate enough to be able to go to Laurier. So yeah, that's kind of the story. Um, I've kept my brother kind of with me this whole time. You know, we still kind of honor his name and stuff. And, you know, you always think like, what could I have done different? And, you know, it was such a, it was such an emotional year. Like uh, my brother, he struggled with depression and bipolarism. And so like one minute he's up, the next he's down, the next we're in a fist fight, the next he's putting hands on my mom. Right. So it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't like, Hey, let's just help him. It was, it was really frustrating at one point, you know, we had to, we had to call um, law enforcement um, to, to remove him from the home. But um, with, ev- with everything, I kind of look at how can I, like, what are the things that I can dictate or I can control? Cause there's so many things that I can't. And what I'm really proud about is like, my family has really come together, like between my sister, my mother and I, and, and just kind of sticking together. During that time for you, how could we, we talked about this too. And obviously I've seen you on other podcasts talk about, you know, your time in Wolf of Laurier. How vital was it for those relationships to get you through the hard time. I know you talked about basketball saving life, but how vital was it for those relationships that you made to get you through those times, you know, with all the stuff you're going through at home? It was vital. So like, firstly, we were homeless. So like, I didn't have many other options. Like as much as I was like, man, I don't know if I want to go to school. There was no other alternative unless I was ready to go to a shelter. Um, my, my coach at Laurier, who's still there now, Coach Falco, he's a phenomenal human being. Uh, he actually helped me find a place um, off campus. And and it actually, I, I lived with a woman named Mama Sue and she had just lost her husband. And, you know, she she didn't rent out to students and it just kind of ended up working out that way. Um, the second I would say is my teammates. So when I had come back um, that year that I kind of was doing a lot and working and so forth, I was being recruited by a couple of schools. And I had always told Chantel Ballet at Windsor, because at the time Windsor was, they were five-time champs and they were just doing some crazy stuff. I always told her, because I was the only Canadian school that that really recruited me. I said, if I ever come back to Canada, I'm playing for you. And so that's kind of where my mind was at. Let me do this for a year. And then I kind of was like, whoa, I can make a business out of this. But then, it, but then Rana, who I met at Eastern was like, Lee, like you need to finish your degree. So then I was like, okay, I got to get to school, but like, what am I going to do? Um, when my brother passed, I only knew one person on that women's basketball team, but 
that whole team, including the whole coaching staff, went out of their way to drive from Waterloo to West End Toronto to come to my brother's funeral. And in fact, there was a whole contingency of Wilfrid Laurier students, faculty and staff that came up for my brother's funeral. And it was like, it made me so emotional. And like, it really, that probably was the first in my life that I was like, whoa, like, like sport, like sports can really be that family for you. And like I mentioned in high school, I had some tough times and I often looked to my coaches to support me and they did. It was the first time that I saw like just people who had no idea who I was. And the only connection that we had was, hey, maybe she's going to decide to come to Laurier and play basketball. Like that's kind of what it was. And it, and it meant the world to me. Um, I also kind of lucked out because um, like kind of like back to Jason's point about when you're exposed to things, how does that get you ready for something before? after the fact. So I went from, you know, alarm clock goes off at like 4.55. I've got weights and conditioning. I've got class for four hours. I've got practice for four hours. I've got mandatory study hall. I got to eat dinner. And then I'm back in bed and doing it again, six days a week to, hey, like we're 90 minutes in and out four or five days a week. I was like, huh? Okay. Like, let's do this. And so I adjusted really well to like the scheduling. And I find like, my home environment with Mama Sue, who's somebody that was also grieving, that also was huge for me. Just having somebody who knew what, like, who's also going through that process. Um, but everyone was so caring. I wasn't pushed um, kind of to do anything I, I didn't want to do. And, you know, we had a really great time. I was one of two Division I um, transfer athletes. The other one actually was a former high school uh, club teammate as well. And so we were top 10. Um, I think we we're top five, actually, the last two years. Went to nationals. And so the basketball was great. The off-court stuff was great. And Laurier was just ended up being the perfect fit for me because it wasn't a school that was too big. Um, you know, it's, it, 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 was, it just was like an awesome situation. But I think the people made it that, made the experience for me that much more better. And it started with like my coach and even our, even our AD, Peter Baxter, who's still at Laurier now. Like I talked to him, honestly, maybe once a week, at least like on social media or over the phone or something like that. So it just goes to show, right? Like at our Canadian level, yeah, we don't have full athletic scholarships, right? But like, it's just a different kind of experience because you're not solely being valued for your output on the court or on the field or on the ice, right? My job as a U-sport coach is to teach these young, it's to mentor these young women. So one, I had to lead, lead by example, but it's to teach them how to be better people, how to be smarter, right? Like how to, things to expect. And so that's kind of where my focus is as a, as a coach now, right? So it just comes full circle, I find. Uh, what would you give for like advice to individuals going through uh, like tough times and personal like family battles while playing a sport? Because I know mentally it can be hard, especially like people don't understand how mentally draining a sport is and how you have to stay focused and locked in at all times. Mm -hmm. But to have external problems going on as well that could distract you how how did you manage to stay focused you know what I think because of the sheer fact that people knew my story like my teammates and my coaches it really helped because it took a load off of me from having to take that first step and ask for help and communicate and I wasn't the greatest communicator right and and like you mentioned like there was all this other stuff going on um I can tell you that every time I put on my shoes and laced it up that was my escape and so like, that was really great for me. But at the same time, I, it was never pushed to a level where I felt like I can't balance these two things. Right. Mm -hmm. So ultimately 
if you are going through something, I think what's so important is that it's communicated. And sometimes we feel like we're going to be a drag or we're bugging our coach or our teammates don't want to hear about it. But we can only like we don't know what we don't know. Right. And I tell my girls all the time. And so like on August 28th, when my kids come back, like we have standards on our fitness and you need to be here. But if one of my athletes is going through something right, like I need to know our staff needs to know. Otherwise, you're held to that same standard, right? And you can kind of avoid a lot of that stuff where you start to feel like, am I just being valued because of this? But really, it's like a miscommunication issue. Yeah. So, so I think just the asking for help part is a big one. And often, you'll be surprised at how, how far people will go to help if you can kind of take that step towards them. So I, I really feel like I lucked out, Jason, because like it just was already understood. And I probably wasn't even privy to a lot of those conversations that happened but it nonetheless like helped my experience. And like when I got to that point where I was like hitting the ground running, like it was like sky's the limit. But that, you know, that transition period was so important where I had the support of my teammates and my coaches. Mm-hmm. Coach, I really want to ask this question because obviously at the time it's recording, it's probably gonna be a couple months past, but at the moment we're obviously seeing a little, first of all, today on the topic of mental health, I really feel like when we talk about sports in general, Mental health, for some reason, somehow become an afterthought, especially when we look at the professionals. Like, we think that professional athletes, sometimes the way the media portrays it sometimes as if they're superheroes, they don't have no emotions, like they're immortal, like they can get through anything. Obviously, over this past Olympics, we're seeing what we see with Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka take steps back because their mental health was, obviously, they were going through some stuff mentally. And specifically with Simone Biles, like she was getting killed for it. Like people were calling her the biggest quitter in sports. People were saying she was this, she was that, but... When you, when you take a step back, people didn't realize that, you know, stuff that small boss had to go through. First of all, she was one of the, the victims of the doctor, you know, like sexually abusing all the people on the team. Like she played through injuries. So the question I have for you is, for some reason, mental health is, like I said, become an afterthought. And the way that they portray it towards the woman, when it comes to mental health, if a guy comes up, for example, like we see with DeMar DeRozan and Kevin Love, they're being commended for coming out to talk about mental health. But when Naomi Saka and Simone Biles come out about it, they're seen as weak, they're quitters, they're this, they're that. Just talk a bit about the double standard that's going on with sports right now when professional athletes are talking about mental health from the men's side and the women's side. Yeah, you know, I I agree. But I think, like, number one, I think mental health has always been an afterthought. Like, I think right now as a society, we're trying to, we're trying to, like, define and, like, distinguish between what's valid and what's not valid. Like, what are we gonna give people props for and what are we not? And I think the different nuances, like, yeah, men and women, or like, what kind of mental health are we talking about, right? Like, is it because you've been abused? Is, is it because you feel like, you know, it's, it's, it's the way you're being coached? Like, there's so many different nuances that I think it's just a new space for everyone. We know the direction we have to go in is that it needs to be prioritized. And if it wasn't for, like Naomi and Simone speaking up and out and being quoted saying certain things, there wouldn't be a space to have the conversation for it. So I look at someone like Kevin Love who spoke out about his mental health and like, he, yeah, he got a lot of support for it. There's also, there's also people that are like, man, like suck it up. You know what I mean? And so I just think as a sports society, we need to do better, but we need to do it in a way that we're understanding that it's, it, there's a reason why it's different for everyone. Like Simone Biles is a black female. Black women have the worst disproportions in our North American economy when it comes to health, when it comes to job, when yeah. it comes to when it comes to 
um, um, investments. Yeah. Like it just, we're three times more likely to, to die during childbirth. Like there's something about the black female body that we, you know, and I know historically there's a, there's a history there in terms of how the black female body has been used and abused. And um, in comparison to like a white female body, it's not the same. Right. People don't fend for black girls like they do for white girls. So the same argument for men and women can be made for that as well. And I think ultimately it's about educating ourselves. For me, being a history major, I think there's a lot that we can learn from our history so that we can help create our future, right? But not, but like right now we're living in the present. And I think everyone's trying to grapple with like, how do we, how do we define these and how do we make sure that all athletes know like mental health is a priority. At our, in our youth sports landscape, even at the college level, like we've been doing the bell, um, let's like mental health, let's talk, yeah. right? But, mm -hmm. if, but even if you break that down, like mental health in the black community is so stigmatized in comparison to white communities, right? Like, so there's all these different nuances. That I think the more education, the more awareness that we build, like the better so that we can be more upfront and talking about and normalizing conversations about them. And I think that's a direction we have to look at because it, we can always look at, hey, what's worse and what's, you know, but at the end of the day, mental health is mental health. Everyone has one. We just want to make sure that we're not participating in sport and we're not doing things or, or having coaches or colleagues or systems that are re-oppressing us and, and deteriorating our mental health. So that's kind of like my biggest thing because, you know, I, I like the Simone Biles one was just really disappointing. Same thing with Shakari Richardson, right? Yeah, like, there's so many. There's so many cases where um, there's a gentleman right now, uh, U.S. fencing, who um, was able to go to the Olympics, but he's got three allegations for sexual assault. And people are like, "How can how can he go to the Olympics and Shakari Richardson can't go because she smoked marijuana?" Meanwhile, pharmaceutical companies are sponsoring the Olympics. Like the irony in this is just <laughs> yeah, <it messed laughs> doesn't make doesn't make any sense, right? Yeah, and. And tied to all that is that mental health component for the people who are victimized in these kind of processes. And then the rest of us who are looking like one plus one isn't equaling two here, right? Yeah. So yeah, whether it's whether it's the Olympic Committee themselves or um, you know, the CCES, like I think we need to create like an index for all sports and stop looking at basketball as basketball and hockey is hockey. And that's how hockey is, or that's how football is. Right. I think that's where it's really going to be slow. And until we start looking at sport for sport and what it represents, which, which is really it, whether it's an invasion game or it's non-contact, it's the same, it's the same foundation. Like how do we do sport better? Like that's, that's what I would like to see in our sport community. So that, and I think that's the best way that we can avoid kind of, you know, just messing around with people's mental health. Yeah, and, and the, the before I go into the final thing, like the most annoying thing is when you see the reporters are talking about it, it's like people who've never played sports, who've never been in yeah. the locker room. Like it's 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 really annoying because you don't know what it's like unless you've actually been like at that level. And that's why I respect a lot of the the new people coming out who are talking about stuff. You know, like guys like Charles Barkley, like you know Matt Barnes, Steve Jackson with the podcast because they know what it's like. So every time they talk about it, they're coming from a position where they know what it's like to be in the locker room. So it's not biased. It's not disrespectful. It's it's based off experience where a lot of these reporters are just talking garbage. It's like you've never, the most, you, the most highest level you played was like high school. Like, okay, everyone played high school. Like, congratulations. Like once, and once, if you didn't go past the high school level, I just feel like 
you do not have a license to talk about it because you, unless you've been in that person's shoes, you do not know what it's like to go through trials and tribulations, especially in small violence cases. Because small violence has to kind of be, it's like the same thing with LeBron. Like when you look at being a role model, you have to be perfect all the time. Yeah. Like you don't have no room for error. Like you yeah. have to be perfect. Like you can't, like we look at LeBron, for example, like LeBron can't, you know, be caught, you know, having an affair. LeBron can't even get par- caught for having like a parking ticket. Like the way society and the way social media is, like you have to be perfect. And a lot of that, a lot of people crumble because social media is telling them they have to be this, they have to be that. And people's mental health takes a fall for that. And it's unfortunate because a lot of people don't take into account that aspect. Like when you look at Simone Biles, for example, and I was thinking about this to myself, y'all weren't saying this when she was winning all gold medals, when she was at the top and she was saying shout out to US saying she had the US yeah. sandwiches. But the moment that she had to take a step back because she was going through this stuff, oh, now it's a problem. Oh, you're this. Oh, you're that. She won. She, you know what I'm saying? She won. She won in the end. Yeah, she won in the end because, and and even even with all the foolishness that people were trying to say about her, it was like she still was like, yeah, you know, the pressure. Like, please, like it's not pressure. Like we know what it is. Like as a black female, I know what she's saying, and it's not right. pressure. She she's using that politically correct term. It's misogynoir. It's racism. It's it's the double standard you talked about, right? Like she has the most medalists, like they even, even predating the Olympics, they weren't even marking her fair on her, on her, um, on her performances because they're like, well, we're going to not mark you because, you know, other people can actually do this trick as well. So it wouldn't be fair, but nobody was saying that about Michael Phelps who has a genetic advantage. So like, why are we having a conversation now? So yeah. all of those things start to pile up and they just become these trends. And then when we talk about mental health, it's not like in that specific episode, like when she gets to Tokyo, she's feeling that, no, this this would have been something like, even through COVID, like you look at the Breonna Taylor situation, like these are all things that would have been impacting her, right? And so we need to understand that it's not just this one specific thing. And, you know, I like for the Naomi's and the Simone Biles, like they're not, they're not really speaking their truth, but they're doing enough to say, Hey, let's carve out a space for this. Let's use our platform for positive. Let's help little black girls know that, Hey, it's okay to not be okay. You know what I mean? Exactly. And so I'm, I'm really proud because I think at the end of the day, she won and she still turned on and said, you know what? Now I feel like performing. <laughs> and she did. <laughs> she and she did. Right. And it's like, she's like, you know, like it is what it is, right? So I I rate it. I rate her so much. 1000%. It's like I said, she got a medal out of it. She's like, and what? Yeah. Even when she's down, she's got a medal. But hey, man. Yeah. So the, the final thing I want to talk to you about, Coach C, you've been very philanthropic, and that's how we met. Um, Jason doesn't know a little bit about this, but for those who don't know, you started, I was just like Candice, you also started the Black King Coach Association, all otherwise known as BCCA. So for those who don't know, just talk a bit about what it is and why you started it. Sure. So the BCCA is a not-for-profit organization uh, really devoted to supporting BIPOC individuals in the sport community. We're unapologetically Black-led. We're the first black, uh, Black-led, female-led organization in the country. And we've got three objectives. It's networking, advocacy through allyship, um, and celebration. And the, I guess the inception for the BCCA really started from an experience. Well, maybe I shouldn't use the word start. People have already people have always talked about an organization like this. And in fact, in the 1980s, there was an original Black Coaches Association founded in the US by prominent football and um, 
basketball coaches. So like the John Thompson Juniors, the John Cheney's, the Nolan Richardson's, the George Ravelings, like they actually started the original one. And mm-hmm. they're and what they did was like advocate for black coaches to get hired at the, you know, at, at the college level because there were so many black athletes, but there were no black head coaches. And at those at the times, that was like Alan Iverson playing for John Thompson. Like it was like yeah. a huge deal because whoa, a black person in a position in a leadership position. Um, in Canada, our sport market is different, right? There's only there's less than 60 head coaches for each sport, pretty much that do it full time at the college level. It's not really the same kind of setup, right? And so we don't have that multi-billion dollar industry. And so um, being a historian, I started to do a lot of research on that. Now, when I came into, uh, when I came to St. FX my first year, I went through some terrible experiences around racial discrimination. And one of them actually had me kind of, but not really suspended from work, but it had me, long story short, it had me asking a lot of questions around like, what's the protocol for this? And like, what are the repercussions and how do we avoid this? How do we like, you know, my whole thing is I hope this doesn't happen to anybody else or that, you know, someone doesn't get a coaching position and right away they're being told that they look scary or they talk scary because they're black. Um, And how do we deal with parents who are racist? And um, there wasn't really anything there. And so I started to do a lot of research. This would have been 2018, 19. And really the BCCA, I started piecing together and COVID like fast tracked everything. I, I really wanted to package it together and go to like a pinball Clemens, go to a Maasai, see if I get a meeting with MLSE and be like, hey, I've got this amazing concept based on the American BCA. Um, but ultimately it just became too much. Like what we saw in the media with black men dying, black women getting shot, crying over their children, we're in the middle of a pandemic. The more and more I thought about it, the more I said like, this is a now thing. And so as much as, we really didn't know what we were doing. We're like, we wanted to be intentional about creating that platform. And so we started with celebration to counter those narratives of deviance, of like being killed, of, you know, just things being sensationalized in the media. And we wanted to shed light on the positive social change agents that, that are coming from our communities, that are Olympians, that are coaches, you know, like, like many of us, I know for me, I wouldn't be where I'm sitting right now if it wasn't for my coaches. And so that's kind of a, a big part of our of our first step. Let's celebrate. And then people were like, oh, shoot. You know, and for me, it was like, this is where we are anyways as a virtual society, right? And so it's kind of incredible we've been, we've been able to do that. But we're just over a year old now. Um, we've got some mentorship programs that we run. Uh, we've got a Black Student Athlete Mental Health Fund set up at the Canadian Center for Mental Health and Sport. Um, we're about to launch... Uh, a national football mentorship. So it'll be our first sport specific one. Our first mentorship was actually a black female coach mentorship, which is yes, really cool. Yes. Um, and we've been able to do a bunch of advocacy, whether it's calls to action, whether it's helping fundraisers, whether it's connecting people. We've got uh, just over 700 members nationwide and our membership is open to everyone. Uh, so it's like allies, um, BIPOC identifying individuals, coaches, athletes, and, you know, we've really built a community. Right now we have 10 sport groups. Uh, some are sport specific. We've got a health group. We've got an anti-racism expert group. So we have some race-based projects that have launched as well. So like a lot of the work that we um, put out ended up seeing itself uh, uh, manifest in the OU anti-racism project. So like a lot of those outcomes and, and, and all the, pretty much the process was started 
like last summer when we started having those town halls. So it's just been incredible to kind of see the movement growing. Um, it's changed now that th the economy is opening up. So like there was a huge emphasis on like creating spaces a year ago, right? So like virtually we were having monthly calls with our sport groups. And now we're at a point where we don't really need the monthly calls, but we're still just as connected. So we've got WhatsApp groups that we connect on informally. Um, we actually are getting ready for our year end annual general meeting and uh, general annual general meeting as well. And I'm really excited for year two and some things that, that we can do. I'll say our biggest challenge right now is definitely resources. I've, I've pretty much bootstrapped the BCCA and we've been really fortunate to work with some incredible partners like the Coaching Association of Canada. Um, we've done some stuff with Canada Basketball, Football Canada, Coaching Association of Ontario. Um, but now I think the next level for us is, is to go that like Black North initiative route and you know get some dollars in, get some staff in and really see it, see it materialize. Do you have any questions, Jason? No, that's just that's amazing. You were you're doing great things. Like that's, I told you. Yeah, Tejan said lots of great things about you, and like holy crap, I'm just <laughs> blown away. Also, I have to ask this live so, uh, for proof for Jaron, since Jaron also has brought you up as well. Um, how did you guys meet? And where did uh, where did that all start? <laughs> yes, Tejan, do you remember how we met? Yes, I do. So I um, I was working with Jaron because Jaron was doing his. Um, uh, senior open letter series. So him and Christian were doing this thing where um they were getting athletes who were supposed to be seniors this past season to kind of do the video. So I helped Jaron with um the video stuff. And this is around the time when I just started new base and um I was I had the idea of ACA. Like I just I just just like how you have the idea for BC. I just had like the premise, like the concept. I was like I was seeing all these other groups starting. And I was like yo like there's a reason why all these athletes are starting these groups at different camps that there has to be a reason. So like, I just knew like, if there's a way to like create something to bring everyone together, like I know we can do some stuff. And then I was telling Jaron that over the phone, cause me and Jaron were like calling each other and stuff like that. And he's like, yo, like, um, I know someone that can help you, you know, her, her name's coach Lee. Like she's super dope. Like, let me, let me contact her for you. So, okay, cool. She he contacted uh, coach Lee, Jason. Um, I texted her through the DM and then we met with herself and Shannon and Quinton and coach Co and coach Corey from um, Mac on the Friday. And then once Q and Shannon came off the call, that's when I stayed back and told them my idea. And then that's how we just, we just took off from there. And this was like back in February. So that's how me and coach Lee met. It was through Jerron. So I always thank Jerron for introducing me to coach Lee because that's how I met with coach Lee. That's how I ended up starting ACA. That's how I ended up becoming the BIPOC liaison for the BCCA. So it's because of this woman that she, I have a, I'm all over the place now. It's because of her. <laughs> and Jaron, I've known Jaron since he was like sixth or seventh grade. His, one of his longtime coaches, Terrence Phillips, is also like one of my longtime coaches and mentors. And so it's been, it's like incredible because I remember like training him and then like seeing him play. I think he played at Nipissing, right? Yeah. Yeah, he played. So it's like I, just seeing that whole process and now he's got, love, love the game. And, you know, like, it's just incredible. I saw him at Christmas the last time I was home, actually, he was doing some filming stuff. So it's just in the basketball community, like it's, it's, it's just so small, but it's amazing how we're connected. One of the things I really learned this year though, is like, holy smokes, like, I can't believe there's people who love basketball as much as me in other sports. Like as much as you know, it's a thing, you just don't know it's a thing until you talk to them. Right. So like, you know, I have like on our BC in our BCCA group channels, it's like we have like a hockey group, a volleyball group, a basketball group, a soccer group, 
a multi-sport group which with like karate and swimming and yeah. like it's just like Drunk, whoa yeah. you know and a lot of times when we had those meetings for the first time people st- like people were just like this is the most black people in hockey I've ever met in my life mm-hmm. like we have like we have like you know 25 year coaches who are saying that volleyball same thing and now all we've done is connect them so BC Montreal Quebec uh, sorry, Montreal, Quebec, Nova Scotia, Alberta. And it's like, dang, what were we waiting for? You know, like that's kind of that's kind of where I'm at. It's like, what were, what were we waiting for anyways? So in some ways, if it wasn't for the pandemic, these connections wouldn't have happened. Exactly. And now all of a sudden, you know, we have a platform like the BCCA and now we can promote jobs. Now we could tell stories. We do some beyond the sidelines features. You know, we're big on the networking. Um, we, we do a lot of stuff around like education. So we had a beyond the sidelines series um, that was that was focused on really giving a platform to student-led groups. So like, you know, and it, it just is incredible the things that we're, we're able to do by just kind of thinking outside the box, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The final question I have for you is just, like I said, it's been amazing getting to know you. Like I said, it's crazy we still haven't met yet. So hopefully the next summer we can, because I know this season's about to start up. But um, I asked this question for one of the videos I did for ACA. So I want to ask you this just because I never actually got your answer. Why is it so important to use the platform of sports to advocate for marginalized communities? In my opinion, because outside of war, it's the only place we can do it. Like Nelson Mandela said it best, sport can change the world, right? And he said that in 1980. So sports has always, like, we're just now, like the WNBA did a really great job during that COVID period in, in amplifying the injustice done to Breonna Taylor. Um, but that wasn't the first time that they've used their platform or that um, athletes and sport organizations have used their platform. The difference now is, I think, compounded with the pandemic and with the very raw footage in front of you, there was no way you can deny it. You can't feed ignorance. Before it was like, I'm in the silo. I have no idea what's going on. And it's like everybody was sitting at home watching the same thing on their phones, right? And so to me, um, I think history has shown us that outside of um, – fighting and war sport is that platform it's it's one of the few things in the world like regardless of what language you speak that you can connect with people from different backgrounds and so that's why I think it's so important to kind of keep this uh keep this movement going and being more intentional about the way that we do use sport to um to further the message of racial racial equity gender equality um just combating all types of of indiscrimination Actually, it's always a pleasure talking to you. Like I said, it's always, it's been amazing getting to know you. It's been amazing to finally have you come on and really share your story because I've always said it before. If you have a story, please share it. There's always someone that can learn from your story. And we just talked about another podcast. Like if you have knowledge, share it because there's no point you having knowledge and not sharing with other people. Like that's just a waste of time. So Coach Lee, I'm really glad Jason also got to meet you too. So please. It's a pleasure meeting you for real. Seriously, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Jason. So now we're getting to a quicker segment. This is the part of the podcast where we ask to guess the question and to answer as fast as possible. So, Jason, I think for this one, you're going to have to scroll a little bit up because I'll mm-hmm. yesterday. Got it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let's so I'm just answering the question as fast as I can. Yep. Let's get it. So first question, Coach Lee. Who's your favorite musical artist? Lauren Hill. Artist or song you have on repeat? Tracy Chapman, Fast Car. Ooh. All-time favorite album? Oh, my goodness. Um, has to be the Fugees. Ooh, okay. Our favorite athlete? Lee Bron James. <laughs> I'll show you binge watched. 
The Walking Dead. Ooh, great show, great show. Absolutely. If you could spend a day with someone dead or alive, who would it be? Ooh, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, this is a hard one. There's just too many people. Serena Williams. Ooh, okay. Yeah. I'm really interested to hear this one. Coach Lee, do you <laughs> like pineapple on your pizza? Yes, I love pineapple on my pizza. I you got to put thing. it on there. Hawaiian. I think, thing. I think it's a Toronto thing, Jason. I'm sorry. I actually think it's a Toronto thing. I think anyone's in Toronto loves pizza. Oh, good. When we started this podcast, I was not expecting so many people to love pineapple on pizza. I told you, bro. I was I not you. expecting this. <laughs> I told you, bro. But we have yet to hear one person on Tejan's side for this one. Milk before cereal or cereal before milk? Milk before cereal. Yeah. That's first. I actually, I actually to, to be honest with you, whoa, 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 whoa. yeah, you got to put them up first, but here's the thing, here's the thing. You are you the first put... person to say milk for cereal. Jason, we finally got Yeah, yeah. Crazy. Listen, you put the milk in, you warm it up. Yes, 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 yes. And you put the cereal yes. in. Yes. And it just tastes yes. proper, and you're ready to take a nap after. No way! That's crazy. No way. So many people are like that. Tejan was the only person we've ever no heard way. does that ever. I'm not crazy. This is crazy. It, Holy I'm crap! I'm not crazy. No freaking <laughs> <I'm laughs> way. Cause <laughs> no, no. I, I have a whole new respect for you now. <laughs> I have a whole new respect for you now. Yo, I, this now made the rest of my month. Yo, <laughs> yo, bro. All right, next question. What's a song you'll never forget the lyrics to? My boo, Nelly and Kelly Rowland. Woo! <laughs> okay. If you were uh, stuck on a deserted island and you could only take three things with you, what would you be taking? My basketball, mm-hmm. chapstick, and some kind of cleanser. Like I'm like I'm like super, like I cannot do anything without showering twice in a day. So like for me, it'd probably be some kind of like soap dispenser, like something that would just keep me clean. I'd be happy with that, my chapstick and my basketball. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. What's one skill you wish you were good at? One skill? Yeah. Hmm. I don't necessarily have a skill. I just wish I was 6'3". I think... <laughs> I think God humbled me because if I was 6'3", my head would be way too big. I'd be in the I'll, league right now. I'll tell you. I'm I'm five foot. I like to say I'm five foot four, but I'm more like five two oh, and a half. Wow. wow okay. Yeah. yeah hey, when I was in Miami, when I was at Miami, I'm pretty sure I was listed as like five six or something. Yeah, they would boost yeah. you. Yeah, totally. <laughs> boost it. Jeez, I'd be like six ten out there. I'd like that. Holy yeah. crap. <laughs> Uh, okay, this one, this one's a kind of weird one. If you're in an alternate universe, it's, it's the same you, but like different timeline of your life. You pick how it is. What would you be doing? I would be. I'd be getting NBA guys ready for their games. Oh. I'd be that assistant coach on the sideline, going through some film with them, getting some game reps up. I can see myself getting D book ready. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely me. 
Final question. I'm actually interested to hear this one. If you wrote a song about your life, which famous artist would you want singing it? Hmm. I think this should be a gospel song for you. Because no, yeah, I think this should be a gospel song. Yeah, you know what? I love my gospel, but my music taste is all over the place. I feel like it'd be part Green Day, a, 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 a verse, a verse by by Kirk Franklin, Chance the Rapper, oh. and Lauren Hansen. Like it'd be like um, you know, one of those mixes. And those DJ yeah. Khaled songs where he has like five people on a track. Nah, nah, no, nah, nah, no DJ Khaled. No, I'm still like, like, here. Lauren, Lauren, Lauren Hill in the background. Yeah. Oh, I mean, like the way like DJ Khaled brings like four or five people on a song. That's what I'm like, like the structure of it. Like that's what I'm yeah. like. Nah, not DJ Khaled. Because yeah, I can imagine you hear a song by Coach Y'all hears we the best music. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or like pre, like the old Kanye. Like I really mess with the old Kanye. Yeah, like graduation. Yeah, like like, like really, really, really huge fan of Kanye. He's got he's got a few tracks right now, but like pre his mother passing, I would say, like the old Kanye. Yeah. But that's all the time that we have. So Coach C, man, I, this was this was a phenomenal episode. Thank you so much for coming on. Me and Jason really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, sorry we couldn't do it yesterday again. It's all but good. it's like, you know, part I feel like honestly coaching basketball is like 10% of what I do. The other 90% is pretty much being like a mom to all my athletes. <laughs> so. yeah. It's all good. It's all good. And that's a wrap on a historic edition of the Lakers Locker. First time we got someone to say no before CEO. So thanks, shout out to my girl Coach Lee for joining us. <laughs> you can find the videos in on YouTube and listen to the full internet all podcasting platforms. Peace. Thanks, guys. <laughs>